Stanford University. having me here um, and giving me the opportunity to talk about this work a little bit because uh, it's been in process for quite some time and I think my uh, co-authors and I have struggled a bit with the front-end conceptualization for this um, paper so I'm very open to um, any sort of enlightenment that you can give me or to help me understand if I'm presenting this in a way that makes sense given where we end up um, at the end of the talk. Um, conceptualizations of race in the United States rest on a foundation of oversimplified dichotomies that have served to obfuscate the complicated realities of race and racial identity. The one-drop rule eliminated any confusion over multiracial heritage. Black religious culture was either a vestige of African heritage or a completely novel experience, as is uh, Moskowitz versus Frazier. One was either a Du Boisian or a Washington supporter. Uh, during the Civil Rights era, one hoped for assimilation and supported Martin Luther King Jr. or was a nationalist who supported Malcolm X or the Black Panthers. Occasionally, prominent black leaders voiced these dichotomies as when uh, E. Franklin Frazier denounced the black bourgeoisie or, or Malcolm X's now infamous comparison of the house Negro and the field Negro. More colloquial, colloquially, one is either down for the race or a sellout. Uh, the continued relevance of these oversimplifications was recently highlighted by Cornell West's criticism of President Barack Obama, saying that he has a certain fear of free black men. All he has known culturally is white. To paraphrase West, one is either supportive of a particular racial <laughs> and political progress progressivism born out of black nationalism, or one is culturally white. In the uproar over these comments later, one was either supportive of West's political progressivism or aghast at the implications equating Obama's centrism with his whiteness. These dichotomies mean that those black individuals who successfully cultivate white support or are successful in predominantly white settings are quote unquote inauthentic to others in the black community while simultaneously upheld as evidence of racial progress by whites. Since Obama's election, those dichotomies largely circle around the concept of post-racialism. One is either part of a new breed of black politicians and leaders who happen to be black rather than a black politician, uh, or a leader whose race dictates a specific political viewpoint or focus. Political views on race and black identity have to date largely been conflated in both research and mainstream accounts of racial identity and policy. Within the academy, that schema has also allowed survey researchers to use unidimensional understandings of black identity, often in surveys as a measure of whether a respondent supports nationalist or assimilationist politics. Others replace the political measures with an affective measure of racial closeness. Those black respondents who felt close to other blacks were quote unquote more black than those who felt a distance from their racial peers. What we're trying to do here is to argue that these basic dichotomous understandings of racial identity greatly hamper research on identity and ideology in sociology. We use a representative sample of black students at 28 selective colleges and universities. We examine the presence, strength, and importance of multiple dimensions of black racial identity. We pay particular attention to whether and how diverse demographic characteristics and social and economic backgrounds influence their claims of a black identity and their articulation of how that identity matters in their lives. This generation of African-American students represents that post-racial generation. 
the next generation of leaders in politics, business, and society more broadly. If, as a case study, the example of the 46-year-old Obama can expose these antiquated assumptions in current conceptualizations of black identity and post-racial identity, then this next generation of black students entering and integrating elite institutions should be an ideal sample for further challenging the tendency to think of blackness in either or terms. That is, one is either race conscious or raceless, assimilationist or nationalist. And what we try to do here is to um, think about um, <clears throat> how the black population has changed in recent years um, and kind of think about how historically we have conceptualized blackness in the United States. And so I've talked some about the one drop rule, um, nationalism as a, as a collective and authentic African-American cultural uh, heritage. Um, <clears throat> and most recently, we've had the multiracial movement and multiraciality as a legitimate identity. And so I think some of you are likely familiar with an, a recent article called Passing as Black, which suggests that if one is multiracial and they identify as black rather than as multiracial, that somehow they are passing. Because the appropriate identity is the multiracial or the mixed identity, um, not either of the, um, of the monoracial identities that can be chosen. And often when one parent is black, black is the identity that is chosen because of the one drop rule and our historic relationship with these categories. Um, we are also uh, increasingly interested in how uh, changes in the socioeconomic profile of the black community might influence uh, racial identity development uh, and expression. So that for this population of students, actually for our sample, they're about a third low income, a third middle class, and a third affluent. So we actually have some variation in their class backgrounds um, to help us understand how those class characteristics might impact identity. Historically, again, in sociology, we've paid quite a bit of attention to black identity among middle class African Americans. So if we think about uh, Mary Patillo McCoy's Black Picket Fences, there's also some other work on um, arts consumption among middle class blacks and how you know, the, the degree to which they're buying art or listening to music by black artists is, in, is representative of the degree to which their blackness is central to who they are. We have paid far less attention to poor blacks or even to more affluent blacks. But the assumption has tended to be that as we move up the socioeconomic ladder, our attachment to blackness declines. So that uh, the ghetto poor, for example, would be argued to be the most authentically black in the way that we have characterized blackness in this country, and that the most affluent um, or the most privileged, um, again, now getting us back to that example of Obama, um, are somehow the most inauthentic in their blackness. However, we haven't necessarily paid a lot of attention to how true this actually is. Uh, and finally, we know that about 10% of the black population, according to the 2010 census, um, are immigrant or children of immigrants now. And so how does that piece of diversity influence a collective expression of black identity, but also what is the variation then among that black population on the basis of these different racial and ethnic heritages um, in the expression of a black identity? And what might it tell us about the future of uh, collective politics 
and the tendency, for example, for blacks to be largely democratic in their voting um, or largely uh, left-leaning in their politics, is that something we can expect to continue with the increasing diversity of the black population and the increasing diversity of their historic experiences and their relationship to uh, racial structures in the United States. Um, <clears throat> so two fields of study challenge this traditional unidimensional definition of black identity. One is this area of multiraciality. The other is this um, black ethnic identity. And unfortunately, we argue that both of these still continue to rely on some singular unidimensional definition of black identity. Um, so in the multiracial identity work, we've got passing as black, where the assumption is still that one is either multiracial or black, not that one could hold both identities in different contexts. Um, and I won't get to talk about that piece of it in this work, but I'm working with a couple of my graduate students on another paper that is really looking at the consistency of um, classification among mixed race adolescents and what we can learn about their mental health based on whether they are consistently identifying as one thing or if they are identifying as one thing in one context and something else in another. In terms of black ethnic identity, uh, while Caribbean and African immigrants see themselves as distinct from multi-generational black Americans, that does not necessarily mean that they don't have a strong black identity as well. Uh, <clears throat> and so one example of that might be the African and Caribbean reaction to Obama's election. It was just as monumental and important for them as it was for black Americans, despite the fact that Again, a black identity, particularly as conceived in the United States, may not be as central or as salient. It may not be expressed with the same kinds of ideological beliefs, as is the case for multi-generational natives. But we don't necessarily know a whole lot about that. I think there's been renewed interest in studying middle class blacks and black elites, both during and after college. And so, again, my work with Doug Massey and colleagues with the National Longitudinal Survey of Freshmen is certainly um, part of that, as is Bowen and Bach's work, The Shape of the River, um, Karen Lacey's um, Blue Chip Black, and uh, Patillo's work um, as well. There's a growing concern over the underrepresentation of multi-generational African-American students at selective, predominantly white institutions. Um, and, and again, there is the sort of understanding in this, or implicit in this, is this idea that somehow those blacks are different from these blacks over here, but we don't necessarily know how that is true, the extent to which is true, or the degree to which each sees the other as different in some way. Um, and then, oh, by the way, we have a black president, right? And around the election of that black president was the return of the authenticity police. Some argued that Obama couldn't gain black support because he wasn't black enough, while others argued that Obama's fear of the free black man, as it were, um, is going to keep him from, uh, from connecting. That he make, it makes him sort of desirable for whites, but not for blacks. So it was, what, was he too black or not black enough? Um, and I think related to that was uh, Eddie Gloud's attack on Melissa Harris Perry after um, Cornel West's comments came out. So that what was interesting was that you had Cornel West criticizing 
the racial authenticity of this mixed race black president. Uh, and then Melissa Harris Perry, who is also mixed race, comes to Obama's defense, and then Eddie Gloud, a former student of Cornell West, comes and attacks Melissa Harris Perry as if she also does not have the authenticity to participate in this conversation. Um, and so it gets pretty complicated, but I think it's also very interesting for understanding what we still tend to think of as African-American politics and political thought, um, as well as, again, the degree to which there is or even ever was this monolithic black experience. Um, and so suddenly you have the return of the one drop rule. And one drop of white blood now matters. Um, so uh, I actually did some media work during the Obama campaign and I referred to him as black. And this little old lady from Chicago, I was quoted in the Chicago paper, she called me in my office to correct me because he was not black, he was half white. Which I don't think has ever happened. Halle Berry is not characterized, ooh, I should turn that off, as uh, half white. Um, and none of these other people are characterized as half white. Um, and so we're in this really interesting moment where we're changing the rules sometimes, but not necessarily all of the time. So what is racial identity? Um, it's, it's really actually not as easy to answer as we might think. Um, and most previous academic and common sense definitions are unidimensional. So one way that people tend to identify or, or sort of define identity is how people classify themselves. So if you respond to the question about race by saying that you are Jamaican, then somehow you're less black than if you respond to the question by saying you're black. And if you respond to the question by saying, oh, I'm mixed or I'm biracial, then you're probably less black than either of those other two. And we tend to define it that way. Another way that we've tended to use uh, to define identity in terms of, particularly in work on sort of political attitudes and behavior is the sense of common fate or linked fate. So the degree to which I think that what happens to black people will affect my life is an indication of the strength of my racial identity. The more that I feel that that's true, the more black I am, so to speak, to put it in shorthand. Um, <clears throat> another way is this affective measure of closeness. So it's like a feeling thermometer that goes from zero to 100, and the higher I score on it, the closer I feel to black people, the more black I am. So if I score 100, I'm really, really black, and if I score zero, I'm, I'm not black at all, okay? Um, and then the relative importance of black and or American identity. So it's a very simple question that we actually used in Source of the River. You know, which identity is most important to you? Black, black and American equally, or just American? And those black people who would say that just the American identity matters most would be defined as the least black. The ones who said just the black identity would be the most black, and then the ones in between are, are in between. Um, and I don't think I have to spend a lot of time explaining the shortcomings of each of those for simply understanding how important is, it, is being black to you in your self-concept, and then what are the collection of attitudes and beliefs, the ideologies, that go along with that for you? Are there some similarities and differences? Are there some patterns? And can we be both assimilationist and nationalist at the same time? So can we like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, right?
right? Can we like, you know, can we think that it's important to expose our kids to black culture while also believing that it's important to, you know, pardon my bluntness, infiltrate white institutions and work our way up in the American meritocracy the way everybody else does. Uh, and in fact, while we have tended to think you either think one of these or the other, I argue, and we'll show in a few minutes, that we actually do both. Um, and so we chose to uh, use some of the multidimensional inventory of black identity, uh, which was developed by a group of psychologists at Michigan in the late 90s, that includes, um, <clears throat> again, several dimensions. Centrality is whether or not race is a core aspect of one's self-concept. Ideology are the ascribed meanings of one's racial identity that suggest the appropriate ways to think and behave. Salience is the relevance of black identity to a person at a particular moment in time. Uh, and regard is the affective judgment one has for one's race. And again, why ideology matters is because Martin Luther King and Malcolm X both have high centrality. So if I administered this to both of them and I just gave them the centrality piece, they would both score very high. Um, they would both probably score high in, in regard. They would think a lot of black people, but they would have radically different ideologies. So it's important to measure as many of these dimensions as possible to really understand what it means and that just because you know somebody has high centrality doesn't mean you know anything about their blackness, so to speak. Um, <clears throat> so here's a student critique of a unidimensional black identity. Jessica, who is a biracial student at Penn, says that she feels it's a, very, it's a small, very vocal group of people that feel that they have given themselves the power of defining what black is. So kind of basing it on these 1960s models of blackness and not even 1960s, because I think it's something that the media has come to represent. So she is explaining based very, I think in, in um, very sort of descriptive terms, the black student experience at Penn. So that while they have all of these diverse origins, there, it's almost as if there's a book you get when you get there and there's this one way to do it. And if you don't do it this way, or at least are pretty close to this way, your authenticity is challenged. Um, and so you don't have to go way to the extreme of living in Du Bois House all four years and only being in black organizations and all of that, but you gotta have some connection to that. And there are styles of dress and music that you should listen to and other things as well. But she really argues, and I think quite effectively, that it's being policed really by a very small group of individuals that it is not commonly held across the campus among the black population. So we uh, used the National Longitudinal Survey of Freshmen. It's 28 selective colleges and universities. Uh, we have five waves of the incoming class of 1999. I apologize for the typos. Um, there were 4,160 students total, but we um, are focused on the black students, of whom 736 out of 1,051 completed the uh, MIBI questions during their junior year of college. And due to time and financial constraints, unfortunately, I could only ask the centrality and the, um, and the ideology scales, the nationalism and the assimilationism scales in, the, um, in, the, in our study. 
um, centrality and regard are very highly correlated, so I feel like I get a good piece of that. Um, and then I just didn't have the, um, the time for salience. But again, we were also not in a position where we could ask them, salience is in a particular moment. And I was less concerned with how black they felt in that moment as I was with some sense of how core blackness was to their identities um, and then how they expressed those uh, methodologically. We also have um, in-depth interviews conducted at Penn and Princeton with 65 black students, 37 are monoracial, 28 are multiracial. I won't talk as much about uh, that today. Um, <clears throat> so we have separate ordinary least squares regressions for each MIBI subscale. Um, and just to give you some sense of variable construction, immigrant status, multi-generational students have uh, are native born themselves and have native born parents. The first generation immigrants are foreign born with foreign born parents. Second generation immigrants are native born to foreign born parents. Uh, we looked at this control also paying attention to region of origin whether they were Caribbean or African uh, and found no meaningful differences and so for parsimony we've um, now eliminated that um, descriptor. Mixed students are those who self-reported as having one black and one non-black parent and are also multi-generational natives because it got too complicated to try to think about being mixed and being immigrant at the same time. Uh, but there were about a hundred of those students. Um, we take into account some structural factors. So we look at heritage, we look at social class background, but we also look at the exposure to segregation and the experience of violence and social disorder in their neighborhoods while they're growing up. So we measure segregation as uh, racial isolation, which is a zero to 10 scale, where zero indicates that a respondent was the only black person in his or her neighborhood and school. A score of 10 indicates that a student lived in and was educated in total segregation. So it's the average of isolation in their neighborhood and in their school. And we do this at ages six, 13 and their senior year of high school. And there's some other work we, where we found that they're actually pretty accurate in their assessments of the comp racial composition of their neighborhoods and schools. We use multiple imputation and then deletion to use the full sample of black students who had missing data on independent variables, but not on the MIBI scales. And that is now the convention. Um, and I'm sorry, this is kind of tiny. So this just gives you a sense of the, the, the characteristics of the students in the sample. Just about 67% or two-thirds are multi-generational African-American, um, what Penn students call regular blacks. Um, about 8% are first-generation or immigrant students. Uh, about 15% are second-generation or children of immigrants. And then about 11% report having one non-black parent. And about 80% of the mixed students report that their non-black parent is white. Uh, the next big chunk is Asian, and then a few are Latino. Um, consistent with the gender disparities among black students in college, only about a third of the sample are male. A little more than half come from two-parent households. Um, the educational breakdowns are um, interesting. About 43% have parents, at least one parent with an advanced degree. About a quarter say neither parent has had any college. This does break down by uh, immigrant status, so that 
Um, African immigrants, for example, have a very high percentage of parents with advanced degrees. Um, so that is not evenly distributed across these other subgroups of blacks. Um, about uh, just over two-thirds of students have parents, at least one parent, in a managerial or professional occupation. Um, about uh, a quarter of the students have family incomes over $100,000, and about 40% have family incomes of less than $50,000. And nearly three-quarters say that their parents own their home, and again, all of this is also um, it also varies by immigrant status and region of origin so that African students are much more advantaged socioeconomically. Caribbean students actually have economic profiles that look very much like black multi-generational natives. The neighborhood and school characteristics, um, about a third come from a predominantly non-black experience, a little more than another third come from um, an integrated experience, and then about 15% come from a predominantly black experience. Um, and there is um, fairly, relatively minimal exposure to violence and social disorder. So on a scale of zero to 10, and it's things ranging from graffiti on the walls and drug paraphernalia on the streets to seeing muggings or stabbings or murders or other kinds of things, in, both in their neighborhoods and in their schools. Um, the uh, MIBI subscales, uh, again, we started with racial centrality, and so these are questions that ask things like, being black or African American has a lot to do with how I feel about myself, is an important part of my self-image, um, gives me a strong attachment to other African Americans, so you can see that some of it is similar to that linked fate kind of question. Answers range from zero to 10. The, more, the higher your score, the more you agree with the statement, um, and as you can see across Black students, there's fairly high agreement on most of these items, though there is some variation. Uh, and the mean across those nine items is uh, just about six and a half. This is the subscale for assimilationist ideology. Blacks African, or slash African Americans should not espouse separatism. It's as racist as whites who do the same. Uh, they should attend more, they should attend white schools to learn to interact with whites. Uh, they should strive to integrate all segregated institutions. They should feel free to interact socially with whites. Um, you can see that the students score very high on average. Okay, they score just about seven um, on this scale. And there's much less variation. When we got to the nationalist scale, what we found was that it actually broke into two very well-defined factors, and one was na a, a culturally nationalist ideology, the other was a politically nationalist ideology, and these are mislabeled, I'm noticing now. Um, so the top is actually political nationalism. No, no it's not. No, I'm sorry. They're okay. All right. So we find a high level of agreement with the cultural nationalism but very low agreement with the political nationalism. So we have reached a point where you don't have a lot of people thinking you shouldn't intermarry, that some of that could be all of those uh, mixed race people in our sample, but in fact, um, this tends to cut across those subgroups of blacks. So you know, think, uh, adopting Afrocentric values, attending all black schools, organizing into a separate political force, these are not things that these students feel particularly strongly about. On the other hand, they do think 
that black people should surround black children with African-American culture, that when possible, they should shop at black-owned stores, and that they should have knowledge of African-American history. Okay, so we actually now treat these as two different measures of nationalist ideology because they capture two very different things. Um, and so the last thing that we did was to look at how each of those sets of factors that I mentioned to you, how the students are classified in terms of their racial and ethnic heritage and their nativity status, um, the social background characteristics, uh, and particularly things related to economic class status, um, and then finally the neighborhood and school context. And this was how I was able to combine my love of residential segregation with my love of minorities in higher education. So, um, <clears throat> so in a nutshell, so that you don't have to pay too much attention to this. What we find is there are some differences in terms of racial classification and nativity status. Okay, so on average, um, monoracial or, or our, our reference group, the regular blacks, okay, <laughs> tend to express the highest centrality um, and, uh, and the highest cultural nationalism relative to other groups, and sometimes the highest political nationalism as well. Um, but we also find that the mixed race or the multiracial black students aren't as far behind as we tend to think. Okay, so that the suggestion that they might be passing as black, so to speak, may not actually be accurate in terms of the way that they think about themselves and they have their self-concepts. Um, so that on average, yes, you know, if you, if you take the um, intercept as kind of a guide, um, mixed race blacks score about two, you know, a point and three quarters lower on average. Um, and the other thing we find is that this doesn't change much by adding the class characteristics. So what I should say is that the absence of class characteristics that you see here does not change by only including the class characteristics. So it's not that I have attenuated for class by including the heritage and the um, neighborhood characteristics. Um, it's that class just didn't matter. And it didn't matter in any consistent way uh, across the equation. So um, you know, the students who have parents with no more than a bachelor's degree have a little bit less centrality on average. Um, those with an advanced degree have a little bit less assimilationism on average. Um, you know, home ownership, or I'm sorry, professional managerial occupations associated with assimilationist ideologies. Some of the things you would expect, um, home ownership, for example, also increases assimilationist ideology. So again, the more you have a family that has kind of succeeded in achieving the American dream, the more they espouse these assimilationist tendencies makes sense, but they're not strong associations and they don't vary across um, those uh, classification categories. Uh, the thing that wound up, wound up being particularly interesting for us was the neighborhood and school context. Okay, so what we wanted to do here is, and I don't think I expressed this particularly well in the front, was to say there's also this structural racism argument that can be made, right? That it doesn't really matter who my parents are or where they came from, what matters is how this society 
defines and categorizes and sorts and, and provides access to resources that's going to be the big predictor of how I define myself as black, how important that blackness may be to who I am in living my day-to-day -day life, but that certainly it's going to, it, it can be more important than these individual characteristics because even affluent blacks still struggle with those structural racial barriers. So they still struggle with uh, discrimination, they still struggle with living in neighborhoods that aren't as uh, well resourced, that aren't as safe, with uh, you know more proximity to poor under-resourced people, um, and that those things are going to have an important impact on um, how we define ourselves and how, and how we express that identity. And so the interesting thing was that consistently, these were the variables that mattered, aside from, again, the classification piece. Um, and so, and in particular, if you look at the cultural nationalism, um, there's an interaction between isolation and exposure to violence and social disorder. Um, the most interesting thing for us was that when we entered isolation alone and exposure to violence alone, um, I'm sorry, there's a little, I'm supposed to take breaks and breathe every hour when I work, <laughs> and uh, I forgot to turn it off. <laughs> So, um, so the interesting thing was, it is not the segregation that matters so much. If you enter racial isolation alone, it has a significant positive effect. The more segregation you experience, the more central race is to your self-concept, the more nationalist you are, both politically and uh, culturally, and the less assimilationist you are. But it turns out that Massey and Denton are right, and it isn't segregation itself. It is not simply that you're living around a bunch of other black people. It's the concentration of poverty and violence and disorder and the lack of resources that comes along with segregation that matters. So that once you include exposure to violence and social disorder in three of the four equations, segregation doesn't matter anymore. However, the greater your exposure to violence and social disorder over childhood, because again, this is averaged at three points in their lives, the more central race is to your self-concept, the less assimilationist you are, the more culturally nationalist and the more politically nationalist one is. The uh, interaction is actually a ceiling effect because once you get to a particular level um, of uh, segregation, it's just that the curve stops going up and it flattens. Um, and as it turns out, at the point that that happens, there is nobody in those categories, so there's no need to extrapolate. Um, I will point out here that my R squareds, as is the case with attitudinal re research, are low. I make no, I'm not trying to get you to just ignore that and pretend it doesn't exist. Um, but. I'm more interested here in the factors that influence and shape my outcomes than I am in how much of the variance in those outcomes I can explain. Because there are all kinds of things that I'm not going to be able to take account of. Um, but these are three sets of factors that we felt were particularly important in understanding. Again, given the increasing racial, ethnic, nativity status, diversity of the black population in the US. Uh, given the overrepresentation of both immigrant black and mixed black students at selective colleges and universities, 
um, given the increasing uh, social background diversity of these students, uh, that it's important to understand that there is not going to be a one-size-fits-all, but that in fact, despite all of that variation, what matters is something that they really had very little control over um, in a consistent way, and that these characteristics are more important overall than the social class characteristics that we tend to spend a lot of time focusing on. So what's supposed to matter is maybe not that um, you have two college, you know, we think that it's how much education your parents have, that if we could just get black people to be better educated, then over the course of time, they would become more assimilationist, less nationalist, because nationalism is a bad thing. Um, and that, you know, then everybody could get together and sing Kumbaya. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm talking in shorthand. Um, when in fact, we could change that. And some of these students do have better educated parents. They did go to boarding school or prep school or private, um, private schools where they had access to all kinds of resources and other things. But that still doesn't turn out to be as important. Their parents own homes, they have high incomes, still doesn't turn out to matter as consistently as their exposure to, um, again, particularly violence and social disorder over the course of their childhoods matters for them. So, our conclusion is that first of all, racial identity is not a proxy for social class status. So the suggestion that because you lived your whole life around a bunch of white people means that you're not really black doesn't really wash because we tend to make that statement saying that you were affluent, you went to good schools, and all of these other things. And in fact, racial identity, the dimensions of racial identity that we looked at aren't even strongly associated with socioeconomic background at all. So if I want to know, if I want to guess about some random black person's identity you know, among this population of black people, knowing what their parents do, or how much money they make, or how well educated they are, or whether or not they own their homes, isn't gonna get me as much purchase on guessing as will knowing what kind of neighborhood they grew up in, or even just knowing are they mixed, are they immigrant, are they first or second generation immigrant versus being monoracial native. But in fact, you know, even that has a structural component to it because we have a history legally of categorizing and defining people in particular ways based on, again, our, our socially constructed notions of race. So keep in mind that one way we know that the mixed race students are likely going to have lower centrality is that they self-identified as mixed that's not always going to be the case, so that there's variation there, but it sort of makes logical sense that this is somebody who's not just saying I'm black. The registrar's offices at their colleges had de defined them as black. So I don't know what they wrote on their college applications, but the registrar's office made them black. That's how they filtered into us, but then we allowed them to identify themselves. Um, many of the immigrant students checked other and wrote in Jamaican or Ghanaian or Nigerian. That would also be a clue that maybe they're thinking about race differently than regular blacks are. But in fact, the, the other characteristic that matters 
is that structural characteristic, which is the kinds of neighborhoods that they resided in during childhood. <coughs> Identity is multidimensional, and in fact, nationalism is more multidimensional than even the social psychologists who developed this measure initially thought, so that now at least we can distinguish between a nationalism that is more around racial pride, historical knowledge, and those kinds of things that is still very powerful and very strong, where the political aspects of that nationalism um, are waning among this population of students. And integration into the white elite, which arguably these students have achieved. So these questions were asked in their junior year of college in the spring semester. So they've completed more than half of their college educations by the time that we're asking them these questions. Um, we argue that integration into this elite neither demands nor results in racelessness or selling out for black students or, and again, more broadly, for a generation and a population of blacks who are likely to become the next sort of leaders in the black community nationally. And finally, a few limitations. Um, again, identity varies strongly by the individual irrespective of background. So I don't have high R squareds to share with you today. Um, and, in, and ideally, we would compare these across multiple racial groups. Um, they did not, this was developed particularly or specifically for black people. And so they didn't necessarily translate very well across um, other groups to Latinos or to Asians. So we're still kind of working on whether or not we can actually do that effectively and feel confident in what we found. And in fact, in some instances, I was actually quite surprised um, about how well this worked with black students given the percentage of students who were immigrant and second generation, and that they tend to have a different con conceptualization of race generally. You know, that, that, a, that for many of these students, again, a Ghanaian identity was far more important than a black identity. Um, or, you know, a Dominican identity was more important than a black identity. And how do we work with that? In fact, even for those students, they were more similar to blacks on both centrality and regular blacks, excuse me, um, on centrality and the ideological measures than one might have expected, kind of given all of the tension on college campuses among black students. I don't know about Stanford, but every year I get asked to moderate a panel on tensions between regular blacks and immigrant blacks. Or I get somebody writing an article at another college about the same thing. So in their minds, there is a lot of struggle. Um, I tend to think there's a lot of misunderstanding. And there's this assumption that if you're identifying as Ghanaian, it means you don't want to be black, when it's just that in that person's experience, being Ghanaian is privileged as an identity. Um, so we also have no comparison to peers in less selective institutions. So in some ways, we are guilty of kind of ignoring um, people who are not privileged enough to get into these environments. We do have some class variation. Nonetheless, we know that, there, that the sort of the low-income kids who end up at the Stanfords, the Princetons, the Vanderbilts, the Rices are different from the ones who end up at you know, Cal State, San Francisco, or um, other less selective colleges. And so um, I think in this particular case, we also know that the ones who end up at the Stanfords 
and the Princetons and the Pens are the ones who are going to go on or be more likely to go on to be president of the United States if we are allowed to have another black one after this one. But that's another conversation. Um, our data are cross-sectional. So, you know, ideally we would look at this over time. Um, and uh, so we're doing the best we can here on that. And that we're only able to use part of the full MIBI scale. In, in my ideal world, we would have used all of the subscales, um, but we did the best we could to use what we felt based on the literature and social psychology among psychologists, again, who use this, the, the item, the scales that were most useful and gave us the most purchase on talking about identity. And future work uh, will explore whether or not these dimensions of identity, and actually I'm more likely to say how, these dimensions of identity affect other outcomes, whether it's satisfaction with college, whether it's time to the degree, whether it's um, aspects of mental health while they're in college. Um, and, and so how their sense of integration into the rest of the university. Um, so I think this does matter for other things that we do in understanding how comfortable students are. There may be some variation in the level of comfort on predominantly white institutions based on what we can know about their sense of themselves as black people, um, you know, in terms of their day-to-day -day lives and their thinking of themselves as human beings that I think are important as we start to think about how best to facilitate success in college for black students, that it's important to remember that they're not all the same that it isn't a one-size-fits-all, and that just because a student is coming from uh, an affluent family doesn't necessarily mean that, oh, we don't have to worry about them because there are other factors that come into play that I do think are tied to race and racial identity that these students struggle with and that um, understanding some of this helps us prepare better for um, creating an environment conducive to success for all students. So, thank you. Um, and I'm happy to take any questions or comments or anything. Yes? Okay, so the first question was about phenotyping. Yes, we did have a measure of skin tone. Um, it turns out that skin tone is interchangeable with whether they're monoracial, immigrant, or mixed. So I'm more interested in their actual self-classifications um, than I am in their, the, um, the interviewer's evaluation of their skin tone, which is less reliable. See, this is supposed to be a long break. That's why it's dark purple. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we opted, you know, we tried it both ways, and we opted to do it this way. Part of that is because I've always suspected that the, the skin tone literature was really a proxy for mixed race versus mono race, or was kind of the best proxy we had. Not that there isn't, because we're all mixed, right, to some degree anyway. Um, so it's kind of the proximity of the non-black relative in some ways. Um, that will change the access to resources, contact with another group of people, and all kinds of other things. So um, you get about the same thing. But if you include them both, there's no skin tone effect. So we took it out. Um, and your other question was? 
No, so we didn't have any questions. I mean, that and that would, obviously, had this only been a study about identity, I would have had all kinds of questions about how their parents talked to them about race, you know, what, what factors shaped the way that students identified. Some people, some students identify as mixed because they don't want to exclude the non-black parent, even though, I actually just had a, a conversation with a student of mine who is mixed, and her, her parents, her father is white, and that side of the family in particular is always making a big deal out of the fact that she's half white. And, you know, her parents don't want her pledging a black sorority. They don't want her pledging any sorority, but they really don't want her pledging a black sorority. But when she's out in the world, she's black. She identifies as black. All her, all her friends and activities are black activities. And if you ask her what she is, she will tell you she's black. But at home, it's very different, and she will identify very differently because of the reaction of her parents. So certainly, if this was largely a study about that, I would have asked all of those kinds of questions. Um, I mean, one thing I could probably do, now I can't even do it as a good proxy. We have all these questions on the development of cultural and social capital. Um, and, but all we would really know is you know, if their parents exposed them to jazz. Um, and I'm sure plenty of white parents did that too. So, so we don't have as much information on that as I would like. Um, some of the qualitative um, stuff that I didn't talk about here has more information on that. Um, so you have some students talking about how there's a mixed kid uh, at Princeton who really kind of moves in a variety of social circles but when it comes time to check any kind of government forms or school forms, he checks black because he feels like it's more important for his successes to be counted there. Um, so you know he's really thinking about what he's checking and why he's checking it and where he's going to be counted in a very context-specific way. Um, so I think that there's a lot of interesting stuff to be had there that we just didn't have the opportunity to do. Um, yes. Yeah, this is extraordinary stuff. Very rich. So Thank rich you. that of course you. ourselves usually quite well um, and so I think though that first of all this this scale had the highest average value of all of them so students and they're all zero to ten you know so students felt more strongly about cultural nationalism than centrality or anything else um, that was surprising to me. It's not surprising to me that uh, mixed blacks 
feel particularly strongly about that, though significantly less strongly than monoracial blacks, so you know, more than a point and a half lower. Um, and I think, again, this is because um, for many mixed-race black people, blackness still ends up being the overriding identity. So it's less true than when I was a kid, but when I was growing up, even into college, they wouldn't let me check multiple boxes because they had already determined that I was a particular thing. What I'm learning from the mixed race students at Penn that I talked to about this, and this student that I mentioned a minute ago is one of them, is that the pressure in the outside world to be black is far greater than any pressure you're gonna get from any friends or any, any other sort of more personal, intimate influences in your life. Um, and so it still becomes important because that's the world that you're gonna be kind of pushed to circulate in. Those are the people that others assume that you will identify with. So, you know, so it doesn't surprise me. It's just, again, it's just not, none of this is as straightforward as we would love to believe that it is. And that that's the category where it gets the most complicated because we do tend to have these assumptions. Um, you know, if we think about, uh, you know, 80% of them are half black, half white, okay? We know that it's far less common for that combination to have a white father. Um, we also know that there's a pretty high divorce rate. So you've got these mixed kids who are phenotypically more black than white being raised by white mothers, okay? Which, which again, means I'm not gonna just throw this lady under the bus, so I don't wanna not identify with her. But when I leave my house and I'm not around my mother, and in fact, sometimes when I'm around my mother, they're assuming she's the nanny, right? Or the babysitter or something. But that when I'm not around my mother, I also lose all of the privilege and entitlements that come from being attached to this white woman. And when I get to school, I am largely seen as a black person. I am largely viewed by the rest of the world as a black person. And I think that that, again, influences that the, the development and importance of that identity. Um, it's often an easier circle socially to run in. So um, black kids in white schools have a harder time with dating and other kinds of social things um, once that hits. Mixed kids will not have that problem in black environments, even though they might still have it in white environments. So in terms of the, the level of inclusion, it wouldn't surprise me that that's where they're more likely to end up, even though, again, they still score significantly lower on it than monoracial blacks do. This was one where we had included a measure of the percent black at the university, and it didn't matter. 
because um, I, th I think part of what happens is that students will find their communities, however big or small they are. So if they want the black community, they go and they get that. And if they don't, you know, then they go and they do whatever else they're going to do. Um, but I, I mean, I was a little bit surprised, um, to be honest with you, that it didn't the, the size of the black population on these on these campuses didn't matter. They're also, you know, I think you're talking about the difference. I, I don't know that any place other than Howard had a black population over 10 percent. So there's, you know, it, it was the number of black students at each of these campuses, not the percentage of black students. And so in that sense. I, I don't know that we measured it well for that particular character, for this particular analysis. Tyrone. So I have not interacted that, though it has crossed my mind. I think I mentioned at the beginning that this, this is like the child that won't leave home for college, um, or just leave home. Um, and so um, that is one, though, that I don't think that we tried, that every now and then I think, you know, we should probably take a look at that. So I'm going to write it down now so that Rory can do that next, next week. Um, the other... I think that actually there are some measures that I hadn't taken seriously that might better capture the campus climate. So there are these questions that we have traditionally used in our measures of uh, performance burden and stereotype vulnerability and those kinds of things around um, the degree to which they feel that um, students, you know, other black students may ostracize them for having white friends or the degree to which they feel like they are um, ostracized or excluded or treated differently because of their race, those kinds of things um, might actually work here um, better than the other thing. Because as I said, as I recall, and we've run it every which way but Sunday now, but my, my recollection is that the number of black students at the school didn't matter. And even how important was the size of the black population when you picked this college didn't really matter. Uh, but I think it's worth revisiting um, and certainly, again, looking at those other measures um, that we have tended to use for other purposes and think about them differently uh, because they are actually both 
how is it with your own race, and then how is it in the university you attend more generally. So there are two ways to kind of get at that. Yeah. Most of the um, pre-college things that we asked about, you could connect the dots more directly to how they would influence preparedness for college. And so um, I can't say for sure, but I don't remember there being those kinds of questions about before they came to college. But there are those questions about the students' experiences with other students, with faculty, and with staff while they're at the university. Um, so. So, yeah, in some sense, I, I end up using isolation and exposure to violence and disorder as a proxy for those other kinds of experiences. One could argue, though, that part of the lack of effect of some of those sociodemographic characteristics is that even though you, their parents are achieving more in terms of occupational prestige or income, that often what comes along with that is more interaction with whites and therefore more opportunity for experiencing stereotyping and prejudice and those kinds of things and that they're sharing those experiences and there and then you end up with a lack of you know kind of it it counts one cancels the other out so the negative impact of the prestige in terms of stereotyping and prejudice and discrimination kind of cancels out the benefit of the higher prestige and and the, the higher income which I hadn't thought about until just now, so thank you. <laughs> Anybody else? Yes.
yeah, I mean, we had some more traditional measures of social, cultural capital, the development of intellectual independence during childhood and those kinds of things that really, that didn't um, matter the way that I thought they would. I, I mean, I went into this belief thinking exactly the same thing, and those things didn't matter. They, st they weren't statistically significant. Um, and certainly some of that could be because they are all at selective colleges and universities that even though there's variation in the resources that they had available to them, that they made the most of what they had. So that the poorer families use the library more, right, while the wealthier families just bought books. Or, you know, the, the more affluent families might have been able to take their kids to Europe on vacation, but the poorer families had to watch National Geographic or do some other kinds of things. So I mean, I, you know, I, I understand that, that those things matter and that certainly this set of kids, even those that are coming from more disadvantaged backgrounds, have more than the disadvantaged kids who didn't get, you know, not only didn't get to college, but didn't get to these kinds of colleges, because there are plenty at, you know, sort of um, state schools that don't have these kinds of experiences. And so I'm very careful to say that I'm not trying to make, I'm not trying to generalize to black people across the board, um, but that in particular, I'm interested in this sort of um, quote unquote uh, void in black leadership and the assumptions that we make about who would fill that and where they would come from and whether or not they are authentically black if there even is such a thing. So I think that minimally, um, we don't know what that is, right? And that sociology just hasn't been able to even define it in a way that would get us to knowing what that is or what the similarities and differences are. So I'm, I'm not, but in terms of the gender breakdown, that is the gender breakdown at college um, and, you know, a third black is actually good because at some individual institutions, you know, it's more like uh, three quarters female. But, but in terms of understanding then what we end up in the adult black population, it is skewed. Women are more likely to be college educated. Um, and so there will be fewer men who have the Obama pedigree in terms of Columbia, you know, Occidental Columbia, Harvard Law and all of that to draw from because that, that is the reality. So I'm not as concerned with that, but I am concerned with the fact that even, you know, I think 20% of the sample has some kind of welfare background, um, but it's more likely to have been when they were six, and then, you know, and then it's kind of done. Um, that's not the same as the state college kids who have even the same level of welfare exposure, but they had it for a longer period in their lives. It's more recent. It has, you know, a sort of chronic impact on availability of resources and other experiences that for these kids is less likely to be the case. It's like it happened then, and then my mom finished college and things got better. So, so yes, I mean, I understand what you're saying. There are certainly limitations, and I don't, I tried to be careful with that at the front, um, because you're right. <laughs> Can I follow, can I, yeah. Let me follow up on that because I, as I'm listening to you and Anthony, I'm thinking that in, it, one could make the argument that no matter what, how diverse socioeconomically or in terms of experience, life experiences <laughs> the population of elite black college students is, um, 
that it is still a specific subset of a certain type of cultural animal, if you will, among the black population, mm -hmm. just to even to want to send yourself on that trajectory or to be put on that trajectory to go into that social field. And so, um, I, so I guess the question I, I'm wondering is if you compare, if you thought to do some kind of s small meta-analysis where you look at sellers at all, I mean, there's a national survey of black Americans where you can mm -hmm. like circumscribe it and look at a certain, um, you know, 18 to 21 year old population in a national sample right. and compare your scale means to theirs mm -hmm. to see because you would have some variation in the national sample compared to the elite college sample mm -hmm. to see how they compare and contrast in some ways. Because I, I do think that there's something to be said about the population of people who go into these elite universities yeah. culturally. Right. Because even if they look different socioeconomically. Right. And I think, yeah. you know, and I think one of the things that I'm struggling with is that, you know, we know now that there are like tens of thousands of lower income minority students who have the academic profile to go to these schools but they don't even apply to these schools and we don't know we don't know why yet we don't know if it's because they just think that no matter how much financial aid there is it's not going to be enough or you know if it's because they they have not even been exposed to that part of the cognitive map of college um, and and I think that will make a difference as well because if what we find out is they just think oh yeah I know that those schools are out there that those schools would be better but we can't afford those schools and so, you know, I know that uh, a, a Stanford degree is going to get me further just by virtue of the name of, of the university than, uh, you know, my Cal State Sacramento degree is going to get. But I can't do that. I do think it's different from, like, I didn't even know Stanford was out there. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, no, I think it's perfectly legitimate to, to think about how this fits into the larger kind of population. And I think... Uh, I think we went into this with a particular kind of sense of about what we were looking for and again how it sort of related to um, the future of kind of black leadership and how that population of blacks, that subset of blacks is perceived as being a part of right. the larger black population and I think that that's a piece that I didn't clearly didn't do as well I think in the write-up um, or as being somehow <laughs> Um, again, inauthentic or, and, and sort of selected by people other than the black community kind of thing. Or, you know, the, I mean, I was always struck by the assumptions made in the media that Obama wasn't going to beat Hillary because Obama wasn't black enough for black people and black people were really kind of trending toward Hillary, not understanding that they just wanted their person to win. And they didn't think that Obama could win. And once Obama won Iowa, they said, oh, you know. And so, again, the way that the white press was thinking about black identity and, and black solidarity was very different from what you knew was actually happening in black communities if you were actually talking to black people. And I sort of walked myself back out of that to think about what is it that we don't know or we don't know well or we just kind of assume and keep going. And how does this subset of the black population kind of fit into that larger thing as more black people get this experience and become part of that kind of mainstream elite and has these opportunities? Yes. But that's a good idea.
didn't, I think at one point we did look at region where they went to school and I don't, and I have to say I don't remember what it was, but it, there must not have been, you know, I don't, I don't take something out just because it doesn't support where I'm going. It just must not have gone anywhere or at least not anywhere that I could have made sense of. Um, we tried to have more HBCUs in our project, but um, Xavier, Spellman, and Morehouse all, actually Spellman and Morehouse said they would participate and then just kind of fell off the face of the earth. Xavier declined, so we only ended up with Howard, who in general didn't, were not significantly different because we did put in a, a, a Howard dummy to see. Um, so, and, and, and that may be just because everybody scored so high on the cultural nationalism that, um, you know, there, there was nowhere to go because if the average for everybody is eight, then even if Howard students are, you know, eight and a half or nine, it's not going to be enough because there are only a hundred black students from Howard relative to all together. And so if all of them answered all of the MIBI questions, there would only be a hundred of them. So there was that piece of it. Um, and um, so, and that is just a flaw in our, you know, it was something that we didn't want. We wanted more HBCU participation because we wanted to be able to say something about those things and we just couldn't. Um, but, you know, the schools do range from the sort of Stanford, Northwestern, Penn, Princeton, um, to some small liberal arts colleges, to Duke and North Carolina and Michigan and Cal Berkeley, um, Rice in Texas. So we, you know, we tried to mirror as closely as we could the College and Beyond project that Bowen and Bach used, um, but we actually added some west of the Mississippi schools because they were even more East Coast heavy and we wanted to be able to say something. So, so when we say selective, it's not that it's entirely Ivy and Ivy Pier. Um, there are some land grant, you know, institutions and small liberal arts colleges and other institutions, but they are selective. So please join me in thanking Camille Charles again for joining us. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.